Over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about creation and evolution. The, the reason is that in the fall, when we did a um, faith and science symposium one evening, we asked for kind of questions. What, what, would you, what topics would you like for us to address uh, over the next couple of years as we do more and more things like this? And uh, one of the topics that came up was creation and evolution. Now, we didn't ask people to break that down into specific questions, um, and, and so under that heading might come a lot of different uh, ideas. We'll see if we tackle some of those in the next four weeks. As you can imagine, we could spend probably four months on either half of that equation, the creation half, the evolution half, let alone putting them together. That's almost like a third topic. So we're going to do our best in several weeks to get a, a good grasp um, but uh, again, this is not the last time we'll do something like this, and we'll, uh, we'll keep fielding more questions and addressing more topics. Today, what we're going to focus on is what I'm calling re-enchanting the world. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> we'll find out as we go through the morning, uh, but we, we need to re-enchant our world. I'm stating that in two different ways. One is kind of a just human race in general. Something about the world has lost its magic, has lost its meaning. We have lost our capacity to find joy in the world. Um, and, and that's kind of a human race wide. But if you're a believer in Jesus, then we have a special calling. We as Christians, need to help the world discover the magic and the joy and the beauty and the goodness of our universe again. Um, so there's, there's kind of a double meaning in that phrase. We'll unpack it more as we go through the morning. Let me just review real quickly what we're doing over these four weeks and why. We want to see people changed. We want to see people grow in their understanding and appreciation for what God's Word says to us about His life-giving goodness. If you're having a conversation about the biblical teaching about creation and you're not thinking about God's life-giving goodness, you're not having the conversation in the right way. Right? We could have a whole lot of kind of antagonistic, attack-oriented debates about creation and evolution and miss this theme, <laughs> That would not be wise, right? <clears throat> so part of our mission here at InTown is to see people changed, known. We want InTown to be the kind of place where people can ask deep questions and get honest answers without hiding, having to hide part of who you are. So you don't have to come to a conversation about creation and hide your intellect or your scientific training. Nor, having this conversation, do you have to hide your spiritual commitments and your belief in God as creator. Right? We can bring our whole self to this kind of community where it's safe to ask real questions in a deep way. Sent. We want to see people encouraged to take their faith into their scientific and academic endeavors into the way that we think, into the way that we do our work. If, if our work is um, in the field of, of science or the academy. And by week four, we want everybody to be equipped with an answer 
when the question comes up, what about the Bible and evolution or any, you know, kind of possible other way of restating that question? We want to model what would a good answer to that look like when you don't have four weeks to answer it. <laughs> you might have 40 seconds to start or four minutes, right? So that's where we want to aim for. So week one, re-enchanting the world. Week two, we'll talk about the key claims that Christianity makes about creation. Week three, what are the key claims that evolutionary theory makes? And week four, how do we answer questions about the Bible and evolution? All uh, today under this heading of we need to re-enchant the world. I'm seeing a lot of this language in things that I'm reading these days. Enchant, enchantment, disenchantment. Here's a quote by uh, a guy named Chris Armstrong who writes a lot about vocation, calling, and an article about Genesis and, and how it describes work. He says, we are living now in a day of complete disenchantment of the material universe. We live in a day when we're told that when we look at the world we live in, the only thing there to see is matter plus chance, plus time. Now that's stating it for the mind. If you want to hear this stated for the heart, watch this movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Now, I'll tell you there's some pretty disturbing images in that movie. I'm not recommending it for everyone of every age. <laughs> but there's an amazing summary in this movie of the view of the world we live in right now. It involves, I, I, I'm going I'm to use a British word, shite. This word comes in handy. It's spelled with an E on the end. I'll let you figure out how to spell the rest of it. Here's why it comes in handy. In the UK, this is an okay word to use in public. And I'm trying to model this cultural interchange here. Uh, so in places where the E-less version of this word might be super offensive and rude and inappropriate, you can say shite and still come out okay. So there's a scene in this movie where someone says, we are all just pieces of shite. And we're waiting for the next big discovery, which is going to prove that we are even smaller pieces of shite than we thought before. Now, one way of saying that is <laughs> complete disenchantment of the material universe. We keep exploring our world and learning about it and discovering more things about it. And the thing it tells us is it's more and more worthless. And our place in it is less and less significant. This is not me critiquing, as a Christian, a view that's present in our world. This is me simply observing and stating that view. Right? And if you want to see it communicated in a powerful form... Now, this movie pushes back against that view. This movie says, we don't accept that. We don't embrace it. And so the, the line that's stated... That kind of in this despairing way is restated again toward the end of the story. So if you wanted to see like a summary of this view of a disenchanted world and our place in it and one effort to, to push back against that, this movie would uh, do the job. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Here's where that's coming from. Post-enlightenment. We have been convinced, and this is wrong. Everything about this slide is wrong. 
it's a good description of, of what we've been told, but everything we've been told is wrong. <laughs> that we live in a two-story universe where down here where we actually live, on, on, on the living story of our house, uh, that's where reason is and where facts exist and actual living occurs. And people store in the attic stuff they never use for real life, right? Up there you store all these sentimental treasures that are useless and worthless. That's where the imagination lives. That's where poetry lives. That's where literature and art lives. If it's real art, then it paints the real facts of the world and it has no beauty and no significance and meaning. But, you know, if it's trying to get you to believe in something meaningful, then it's, it's upper story art. That's where beliefs live. That's where values live. Everything that makes life worth living is up there in the attic in our universe. But where we actually live is right down here. That's a post-enlightenment division of the world. Now, here's what happens to that. That means the moment we start talking about metaphor, we're talking about the upper story. Poetry, metaphor, imagery, figurative language, they belong up here. If we want to describe the world as it actually is, we can't use any poetry, we can't use any metaphor. Okay? If we apply that model to reading Genesis and we find any metaphors, then suddenly we assume the Genesis creation story has nothing to do with the universe in which we actually live. It might be a world where we'd want to live. Maybe life in that world is worth living. Too bad nobody actually lives there. How do we know nobody lives there? Well, we didn't get there by using reason. We got there by reading a book full of beliefs and values. And if it's full of beliefs and values, it can't have anything to do with facts. So every time the creation-evolution discussion comes up, it's really about something much bigger. So one of the things I'd say is that as we're having conversations with people about that, clarify what conversation it is that needs to be had. Maybe it's a conversation about, I don't understand enough facts about the fossil record, but maybe it's a much deeper I think I'm a piece of shite and I'm afraid that everything I think is beautiful and lovely is utterly meaningless and insignificant. That's a different kind of conversation. And we can hold somebody's hand and say, I am with you. If if I thought I lived in a world like that, I, I would despair. And that's worth weeping over, right? So all that to say, that's the kind of two story thinking that we've been trained in in the modern western world it's why we need to re-enchant our world and god wants to re-enchant our world it's why c.s lewis wrote books about narnia to help people re-enchant the world and uh, why we talk about the gospel and literature on tuesday nights at our house but that's a shameless plug Um, let's talk a little bit about why the first readers of genesis needed their world to be re-enchanted. Here are some of the kinds of questions that the first readers of this Genesis creation story would have been wrestling with. Was our world formed by the spit or the semen or the snot of a god? Because that's what Egyptian creation stories said about the world. A god masturbated and here we are. A god sneezed and here we are. A god cleared his throat. And here we are. Are we the byproducts of a pointless process? 
That's a good question. How does Genesis answer that story? No. <laughs> no. We get something that looks a lot more intentional, right, than that. A lot more orderly, less chaotic. You know, a sneeze just comes on you. <laughs> oh, look, a world. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the impression you get when you read the Genesis narrative. Let's say we're Israelites who just left Egypt. We just ticked off the mightiest empire on the face of the planet. And our 400-year collective memory as a people is of being slaves. We are a slave nation who just ticked off the mightiest empire on the face of the earth. And there's a good chance that we're going to tick off some other empires on the way back to our ancestral homeland. (laughs) What the heck hope do we have? Answer? There's no place on this planet we will go that our God isn't with us, present. We will be okay, no matter what. Now, the question the Israelites weren't starting with was, we want to know the precise biological mechanism by which the diversity of life on this planet originated. They weren't reading Genesis to answer questions about evolution. I'm not saying Genesis doesn't speak to those questions. I'm just saying that before we start getting to those questions, we have to start coming into the text asking what kinds of questions was it meant to address. And then if we find it doesn't address all of our questions in the way that we would like, we wrestle with that rather than sort of dismissing it as insignificant because it's not addressing our questions in our way. Does that make sense? Remember, the Israelites lived in a world that said every nation, every region, every locality has its own god or goddess or goddesses, plural. So the temptation every day, if you're an Israelite, is going to be to believe that the God of Israel exists only for Israel, only in Israel. And we're starting with a story that says, hey, Israel, your story has to do with the entire universe. In the beginning, God created, what does the text say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that phrase in the Bible doesn't mean the sky and our planet. In the Bible, that phrase, the heavens and the earth, is a summary for the entire universe. Everything that isn't God. Sometimes earth means just a a handful of soil, right? And, And sometimes earth means our entire planet. And sometimes earth means everything that isn't a sun, a moon, a star, or outer space, right? And, and so heavens and the earth is everything. Are there many competing stories being shaped by many different gods according to each locality you live in? And you're going to have to learn a different story and a different god every time you move from one place to another? Or is there one big story that gives coherence to everything. You and I might think, hey, these were unsophisticated pre-scientific people. They were wrestling with dumb questions about whether the universe is the body of a goddess. These are real questions. Welcome to postmodernism. This is the same question. It may be approaching it from a different way, but it's the same kind of existential question. Wonder and awe, how much can you get done in a normal week? What's the answer in Genesis? What can God get done in a week? 
everything, right? What happens when you speak? Oh, everything it falls into place exactly the way I want it, right? No. Now, this question is going to get us at um, issues of uh, figurative language. Let's go back to day one. We'd see this repeated throughout the whole week. Verse three, and God said. Verse four, and God saw. Is this literal language or figurative language? Does God have speech organs? Did he move his lips and mouth? Did he inhale so that he would have breath with which to produce these words when he said them? Does he have eyeballs and neurons that transmit signals to a brain? Does God have a body like yours and mine? Is Genesis making that claim? Highly unlikely in a world where all these gods and goddesses were thought of as having physical bodies, that Genesis is saying, oh yeah, your God too is just like that. Especially when we're going to read the very next book in the story, Exodus is going to tell us, don't make a statue that implies that your God has a physical body. So, already, before we even get to the question of how long is a day, Already, the question of figurative language has come up in the story. Now, remember, we live in that two-story universe. Where we live and the attic up above, and it's false, right? That's not the actual kind of universe we live in, but that's what we've been trained to think about. So the moment I say some of this language might be figurative, you've been trained to assume none of it is true. How utterly false. Human beings don't work like that. Just to prove it, I uh, pulled a book off my shelf yesterday. Uh, I love to read about the American Revolution. Pulled a book off the shelf about the Battle of Saratoga. And I read this phrase where this guy's telling straightforward history. And he uses a metaphor. He says, soldiers were driven to enroll, enlist in the army. Really? Someone loaded them in a wagon and whipped the horses? Or they were hitched up like they were horses and someone whipped them and made them go join the army? No. I did the same thing. I just Googled epidemiology, popped up a paper about cancer among those who live close to nuclear facilities. And I read this statement in the first paragraph. It said, these conclusions arise from... Really? The conclusions rise up in space? No, even a scientific paper that is trying its best to avoid figurative language as much as possible uses it. Why? Because that's the way the human imagination works. That's the way human language works. That's the way reality is. And so, if I say, God said may be a metaphor, God saw may be a metaphor, look, I found out Trisha was getting ready to move to Charleston, and I said to myself, i got to marry this girl before she moves five hours away. Now, if I'm telling you that story, do you picture in your mind Jimmy standing somewhere and literally saying out loud those exact words? Or is saying sometimes a metaphor for forming a conclusion, right? For your will and your desires. Okay, so that may color how we talk about creation evolution over the next several weeks hey a couple last questions if i could rest all the time would that be a good thing 
or a lot of um, creation accounts in the ancient world said the gods made us so they could rest. We are their slaves. We produce food for them so they don't have to. Am I somebody else's slave? Am I just here as a grunt worker waiting for it all to end? Or is real life when I get my own slaves to do work for me and then I too can rest all the time? Israel, what is your God like? Is he a worker? He goes through this kind of work week where he works, he creates. Now it's not work cursed with thistles and thorns. We're not in Genesis 3 yet, right? But work is not a bad thing. In fact, kind of forming things is not a bad thing. Being a craftsman or artisan is not a bad thing. Now, ancient Greeks said it was. Real citizens were expected to never use their hands to do any kind of labor. You bought slaves for that. That's not the world we live in. And uh, if I could work all the time, that'd be a good thing. This is our question in Atlanta, right? Email's always on. People can always get in touch with you. I'm busy is a boast, not a complaint. What What kind of world do we live in? It wouldn't be a good thing if I could work all the time. Do I rest only because weakness and fatigue requires me to? No mention of weakness and fatigue about that day seven. Why does God rest? To enjoy. To take delight and satisfaction in the good world that he has made. Very good. Job well done. Sit back and take delight in what has been made. You see the theme of re-enchanting our world? There's a difference between an exhaustion and a rest that's forced on me so I won't have a breakdown versus I actually want to carve out space in the daily and weekly rhythms of life to just slow down And we're going to go through, we'll come back to some of these definitions. What does the word literal mean anyway? Um, Are there three different definitions of evolution? We're going to do this, re-enchant the world. This is one of my favorite pictures ever. I took this on our sabbatical over the summer. It's a very good picture. It would be a good picture if Trisha wasn't in it. If this was a day five picture... This is a day six picture. I've been waiting to put human beings in this beautiful, life-flourishing environment. And um, getting to watch Trisha enjoy something she loves is a great joy and a great delight. Re-enchanting the world. It's okay to slow down and just say... The ocean is beautiful. Even if I'm not a marine biologist who can tell you every answer about every question about every atom in the ocean, it's okay. And it's okay to write poems about the ocean. Let us adore the Lord, maker of marvelous works, bright heaven with its angels, and on earth the white wave sea. That's the whole poem, y'all. God says it's okay to carve out space for not being productive 
for just using your imagination to write four lines about angels and oceans. It's okay to walk and look at the tops of the waves that are white. Jonathan Yoder is going to come and talk to us about what it's like as a scientist to read the Genesis story. Jimmy asked me to give a couple thoughts on uh, thinking of this from a scientific perspective, and this is fantastic. And I think on the subject of wonder and awe, I just had a, I had three things that came to mind. And I think the first thing is, you know, thinking of uh, the good work of God and how much that brings us wonder and awe. And I think of the vastness of our universe. In fact, we're still learning more about it all the time. I can't even wrap my head around light years, and then, you, you know, the, the amount of time it takes for light to travel in a year that we have to measure the universe in. And if you want to think of scientists, we don't often think of them. You probably don't think of me as an excited person. But if you want to see some excited scientists, if you ever watched the video of the, the team that put the Webb telescope up uh, several months ago and the excitement of that team, you know, it was like their team won the championship. They were so excited of the images coming back. And I think that's just a taste because we still don't know how big, how vast, how amazing the universe is. And I think a little closer to home, it's, it's kind of how much our own, our own selves, the, our bodies, those, the animals around us, you know, what makes, what animates us, what brings us, makes us who you are. And I don't know if you've ever pondered the question about how much, what, what's a human body worth? I'm just saying the stuff, the building blocks of our body. You know, there are calculations where this is done. You know, scientists are uh, unsentimental a lot. And so they've actually thought about, you know, if you were to break down the building blocks of humans and you were to try to buy those same building blocks from a scientific supply store, you know, the iron that's in your blood, the calcium in your bones, it, you know, it, it's about $50. Maybe with inflation, it's $100. But the, the point of that is not that we're not worth much, but the animating part, the part that God put in in our bodies to animate it, and the idea that there's DNA that's, that's the language that pulls all that together, that makes us who we are, is just amazing. In, in fact, you know, Francis Collins, who, who just stepped, he's a fantastic scientist who just retired from the National Institutes of Health, you know, his life work really was around understanding DNA. And in fact, he called it the, the language of God um, uh, because it really is the part that makes us who we are. And, and so that fills me with wonder and awe. I think the second thing, briefly, is that the, the good work that God gave people to do. And as a scientist, that, that really, um, I know we didn't really talk about that today. I'm sure we'll get into that. But the fact that after God created the world, the, the work he gave humans to do was around uh, tending the garden, around understanding the world around them. You know, the animals were brought to Adam to name them, to, to, to understand, and that was a key part of his work. And then the third thing was around connection, connection, to, um, connection between humans and connection to all of, all of life. And again, the, the tragedy of Genesis 3 is that we've lost a lot of that connection, but it's still there. And there's amazing things around the, way, the ways that organisms connect to each other. And I'm really excited for, 
for eternity when that, that connection gets restored, when God, when God pulls all that back together. Because I feel like we don't even know what we lost because all we know is a Genesis 3 world. And I think finally, um, it's just that the wonder and all about the human, human connection to all of life. You know, I think the, um, the you know, plants and animals, the, you know, they're, they're connected together. And, and how, um, how, many, uh, how many of us, uh, we learn more about this all the time, but the other question that, that is, is fascinating to me is if I were to ask you how many of your cells in your body are human and how many are not, you'd be surprised that most of you is not, is not human. There are more bacteria, there are more um, other organisms inside your body, inside your respiratory canal, inside your digestive system that are continually communicating with your body. You could not survive only with human cells. And that, to me, is fascinating, that God put us in a good world and that we need the, the world around us. We need to communicate with that, and I think that that fills me with a lot of wonder and awe, makes me feel small, but also makes me worship the God, the good God who made who made this good world. So, thanks, Jimmy, for letting me give a couple couple uh, thoughts as a scientist. This is fantastic. Look forward to talking more. Thanks, Jonathan. <clears throat> so, over the next uh, couple of weeks, we'll be hearing from others at in town with scientific interest and training and vocations. Um, as we go deeper into this. As I said, I have some slides uh, that include some resources that you might look at for further study. We'll be sending those around. Now, in terms of sending, I want to send us out to worship, and, um, but with, with a prayer. Here's my prayer for us today, that the way we've been prepared for the possibility of worship by thinking about re-enchanting the world would carry over from this room to where we go to worship together.